Welcome to another episode of the Warrior Way podcast. This week's guest was WHS educator and Hall of Fame coach Jim Trett. Trett had some remarkable stories to tell, as we knew he would, and some takes on topics that I think people are going to find very relatable to. So, Grant, what'd you take away from Coach Trett? Biggest thing I took away from him today was uh, just the wisdom he has uh, for all of us. And then also, to be honest, I could have listened to you guys talk small town South Dakota, class B basketball all day. It was a lot of fun listening to that. And on top of that, he did a great job in today's draft as well. So I'm excited for the viewers to listen to that as well. Those of you that love small town South Dakota, you'll like this episode. We got into it for a few minutes. But we didn't want to take too long because we know some people haven't had the luxury of experiencing small town South Dakota. So let's get to Coach Trett. We really enjoyed this conversation. We hope you do too. This is the Warrior Way. All right, we're joined with Hall of Fame coach and current WHS educator Jim Trett. Uh, we are really excited to have you on today, man. And thanks for taking the time on a Saturday morning to come in and talk with us. So really happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Um, uh, I got up early, worked out, and I'm always ready to go. I've got a lot of energy. It's early, so this is my time of the day. So on a Saturday morning, do you have the same exercise, early morning routine, or does it change on the weekends? No, it's the same routine. I just get up just maybe an hour later, maybe two hours later, instead of, you know, quarter to five. I usually work out about seven. Okay, so not, not real early then. No, it's not too bad. Yeah, okay. So I want to jump right in, uh, talking a little bit about how long you've been in education and where you've been because uh, it's a pretty extraordinary feat to hear somebody been in education so long. So how long has it been for you and where have you been? 42 years. I started at Northwestern High School south of Aberdeen and 13 years there. And there was, it was Camelot. It was a wonderful experience. It really was. Two years in Laverne. And I don't know that we were ever going to leave Laverne, but my wife was driving back and forth to Sioux Falls. And we had really young kids and the winters were really hard on her. And Sioux Falls, Washington opened up and she said, you know, we can all live together without me driving back and forth working here. And so I applied for the job and got it. And so I've been here for 27 years and it's been a great experience here too. So let's let's go up to northeastern South Dakota first because that's my stomping ground and I'm going to know some towns that some people won't. Um, so that small town south of Aberdeen was called Millette. Right. And that's near Turton. If you, yep, not too far from the Turton Frogs. See, I I'd, I'd spoke about Turton in the first episode, and everybody thought I was making stuff up about it. There is a town called Turton, though. There sure is. I, um, I still believe that you guys are making up terms. <laughs> Never been. It's back. stuff that only northeastern South Dakota people know. So let's let's talk about the Northwestern Wildcats just a little bit. What are a couple of your most memorable memorable experiences from those first thirteen years up there? Well, first of all, just um, landing a job at a small Class B school. I interviewed at a whole bunch of places coming out of college. But Northwestern was a pretty new school, brand new. They built it in pods. It was different than most schools. And uh, the gym was brand new. It was really nice. It had a tile floor, but everybody did it those days, except for the really old schools. And I thought, wow, this is a brand new school. If I could start here. And they were looking for somebody that wasn't from the area. I'm not sure why. I think they wanted to run something other than the Northern Shuffle, which I knew nothing about, <laughs> you know, Bob Box. And so they gave me a shot at it. And and away we went. It was a really great experience. I'm surprised that anybody up there would let anybody run anything besides the Northern Shuffle. Well, that's what it was at that time. And I don't know why they were upset with the Northern Shuffle, because everybody we played ran it. And it was really difficult to defend. So um, it was just what the school board wanted. And it was kind of a quirky thing. And so that's the way it worked out. So just for people to know, who were some of your biggest rivalries while you were a Northwestern Wildcat? Well, Warner is the number one rival, without any question. And that's 12 miles away. And um, we went to church out in the Lutheran church out in the country. It was half Warner, half Northwestern. So on a Sunday morning after we played them the night before, bragging rights were, were alive and well without any question. Cresbard. Cresbard no longer has a school. One of the hardest working little bunch of school that you ever saw. Football, nine-man, basketball, those guys played hard. Condi, Condi Dolan, they were one. And, of course, we uh, love playing Lankford with Byron Edwards. There's a lot of energy in the gym. Shout out to Byron Utter from Mobridge now. Um, so you speak about the Langford Lions. Any memorable games you have just because I want to get the Lions a plug? Well, um, at Langford, we played one night, and uh, we were evenly matched. And it's not too far from my hometown of Oaks, North Dakota, probably maybe an hour away or so. And we, we, um, we come out from uh, pregame out of, out of the floor, and there was a whole big crowd from Oaks there. And in, in our section, and they were really revving it up. And so that got their crowd going too. And I think we won a really close game, but I remember that experience. That was a lot of fun. 
It's pretty cool. So, okay, just so we don't have listeners turn off because they don't know any of these towns we're talking about. So you went from Northwestern down to Laverne for two years, and then you interviewed here at Washington. Um, were you optimistic that you were going to get the job at Washington when you applied for it, or was it just kind of throwing your name in the hat? No, I, you know, I wasn't really optimistic. You know, I was from a small school, but I knew I was well-known in South Dakota, so I knew that would help a little bit. I knew Mark Miley really well. I didn't know if he was a deciding factor. But what really happened was Wayne Carney was coming in as the AD. He wasn't here yet. We came at the same year, but he had already been hired. And he gave me a call from Hamlin and said that he wanted me to take the job. And that was, it was pretty easy then after that, that I took the job. And he, of course, he brought his son, Shad, with that didn't hurt. I hear he was a pretty good player for you. Yeah, he was a really good player. Great shooter. So was it pretty early on after you got the job, you knew how special of a place Washington was and that you wanted to stay for the long term? Well, first of all, knowing at one time that it was the biggest high school in the nation, and to think that a guy from a little town in Oaks, North Dakota, was going to be teaching and coaching at Washington High, it was pretty special, no question about it. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't easy at first because um, the program had kind of had gone in the wrong direction for a while. And when I got here, everybody else was good. And we played in the SIC conference down in, with uh, Sioux City, and they were good. They had a Heinrich player that played in the pros, and uh, so. Uh, it, it was it was a tall task, but we got it going. It took a little while. So I have to talk on that. I, I, I hope the listeners know who Kirk Heinrich is. What was your game plan to go against Kirk Heinrich? Well, the problem was there was four other really good athletes with him, and that was the problem. And they would ball screen him all the time, and he would either split it, he would go around it, he would pop the shot, he would they would pick roll, uh, he would do everything off that ball screen, and it was almost impossible. You tried to trap him, it didn't work. You tried to, you know show really hard it didn't work if you, if you went underneath the screen he'd shoot it and uh it was a nightmare without any question but it was a good experience what years what year would that would have been like when was he a senior you see 97 98 99 right around there okay yep so with you being at washington for the long haul i mean you've been here forever what are some of your best memories being in this building well first of all it took about two years to get to know the building you know, I knew my classroom and where I was, and I knew how to find the gym and stuff like that. But uh, just when I first got here, the principal was Jan Nikolai, who was a wonderful lady. And she uh, she said, you know, I don't know. That was when all the schools split up. So it was really hard. They built a new Roosevelt and everything. And, and uh, kids were allowed to go wherever they wanted to at first. And so there wasn't a lot of school spirit. We had football going pretty good, but everything else, you know, was, wasn't going really great. And she said, I don't know if you can ever really get the kids involved again. Now, she wasn't talking about the players. She was talking about getting kids to the games. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm from a small school. That's uh, that's what we do. Everybody goes to every game. And I think in three or four years, when the kids started packing the gym, I mean, you had to get there for the sophomore game in order to get a seat. And I was really proud of that. I thought with the players and us, we went around and talked to the kids and told them after school on Friday, go home or go out, have something to eat, get back to the game. It's about an hour and a half. And boy, the kids started rolling in. Of course, we started winning games. That helped. Mm -hmm, for sure. Did you always know that teaching and coaching was what you wanted to yeah, do? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing. I was talking to the kids the other day, the students are talking to the juniors. I was telling them, you know, it's about time you guys start thinking a little bit about your future. You know, you don't have to know exactly what you're going to do. And somebody said, well, how did you become a teacher? I said, I was a sophomore in high school in Oaks, North Dakota, one of the biggest Class B schools in the state. And um, I made the varsity. As a matter of fact, I started on the basketball team. And it was at that point with my high school coach, Dick Miller, who was a great mentor to me, that I said, I want to teach and coach. And really, to be honest with you, I really wanted to coach. I didn't think much about the teaching part at first, but I love that now. But um, that's what got me into it. There was, there's never been any turning back. I wanted to coach the whole time. So you spoke a little bit about mentors. Who have been some of your biggest mentors over the years? Well, it started with my high school coach. And then uh, Craig Nelson's grandpa, Eddie Beyer. Was a great coach up in North Dakota. Yep. And, uh, and you know, the, the players that went before us when we were growing up, watching the kids ahead of us and uh, how they their passion and energy for the game, and those those people were really great mentors. They were great leaders. And you wanted to wear that uniform so bad. It was unbelievable. And then as time went on, guys like Bob Ox, Bob Olson, Terry Small, um, and um, eventually we, we kind of uh, fell into – visiting Don Meyer one time down in Nashville, and he, he really changed a lot of things. But there was a lot of – just the coaches that I coached against when I first started coaching that were already in it, like Dave Bauer from Ipswich, guys like that, Chuck Wilkie from Warner, you know, those kind of people. 
they, they were mentors too. And working camps all summer long was a huge deal. I met coaches from everywhere and I just soaked everything in. I was a young guy and I loved it. And, and I tell you, you can learn a lot from those people. Did you ever go and help at like the Hanson Anderson camps and that kind of stuff in the summer? Yeah, I, I did Hanson Anderson a little bit, but I was ingrained in the Northern camps then. And with with uh, Terry Small and uh, Bob Olson were running them. Uh, Bob Walks was ahead of it, but he just kind of oversaw it. So we were busy with those a lot. I went back to Valley City all the time, Valley City State where I graduated, mm -hmm. went there too. But I went down to Hanson Anderson several times where Dick would call and he would just have me come down for a day. And I would go down for a day and I would speak to the kids and do stuff like that. And that was a lot of fun. There was a lot of good players there. So I have to ask, and for the people that know Dick Hansen, I was lucky enough. I have a story. Uh, when I went to Hansen Anderson Camp of Stars my first year, I hadn't been to the camp yet. And anybody knows who Dick Hansen is, they know he can always tell a story and he knows everybody. So I was walking into the Huron uh, um, dorms that we were staying at. And he was sitting on a, on a chair greeting people. And I had never seen him before and I didn't know who he was. He looks at me and he goes, Jeff Tobin from Langford. I'm like, well, who's this guy? And he starts telling me about the year that we had previous and how he knew my, my dad or how he knew my relatives. And that was my first experience of Dick Hansen knows everybody and every story about them. What are a couple of your biggest Dick Hansen stories or one, if you can remember? Well, that's true. I can remember um, one thing. He loved class B more than anything. He, he knew everybody. He probably knew everybody in class A, double A, but class B, that was his big thing. We were coming back from the B tournament in Rapid City, and um, we stopped in Chamberlain to, at, at, a, at a restaurant to get something to eat. And I walked in, and I heard my name screamed out. And there he was in a booth with a bunch of people. And went over there and sat down, and he said, all right, start telling me about those Buckeye kids. Tell me what they did. How come they were so good? What did you do? That's how he talked. You know? yeah. And uh, so I sat down, and before you know it, he bought everybody breakfast, and we had a great time. So I'll never forget that. That's funny. So I, I just have to ask before Grankinson, you talked about Eddie Beyer um, and then now Coach Nelson's grandpa. Coach Nelson's the head coach here. As you got toward the end of your coaching tenure here, it obviously, whether we'll admit it or not, it was hard to give up something that was so special to you. Did that bring you a sense of comfort knowing a guy like Craig who had that that gene pool, that coaching tree coming from Coach Meyer at Northern too? Did that comfort a little bit of you were putting in, in good hands? Yeah, that was fantastic and i kind of brag about it because i'm proud to be a south dakota but you know i was uh, i'm from north dakota and i coached here for 18 years and then to be followed by somebody from north dakota we kind of brag about that a little bit that's cool but i remember going down to the gym one day or craig came up seventh period he said grandpa's here you got to come down and see him so after school i went down in there and uh we ran this half court trap at northwestern laverne and here for a long time we called it 13 and we we, we did different things out of it and um, I walked in the gym, and he's introducing it to Craig and his team. And Mike Holstein, who I coached at Laverne, and I'm standing there, and I go, that's where I got it. Because he had spoken at a South Dakota clinic one time, and he had showed how to run that trap. And it looked like a 1-1-3 zone, and you could, you could make it look however you wanted to. And people didn't know how to attack it. And I finally remember where I got it from, from Ed Byer, that many, many years ago. And it was really fun to watch him teach, teach it again to those kids. I'm sure many people got things from Ed Byer yeah, that they don't even realize they got. All right. So, uh, can I kind of, you've been talking a lot about teaching and coaching with both me and Jeff being kind of newer to the coaching and everything. We want to kind of spend the next little segment talking and picking your brain about coaching and hoops. So, what were always the most important things you preached as a coach to your players? Well, fundamentals. We never, ever went through practice, even if it was the night before a game when we didn't have about 45 minutes of fundamentals. A lot of shooting, ball handling, passing, stuff like that. We did a lot of things in two- and three-minute segments that went pretty quickly, but it was just a, certainly a reminder that we were going to work on those every single night. And um, um, I was an offensive player as a, as a player. I, I was, I'm not very athletic, can't jump, slow. <laughs> Couldn't play defense, but I know I had to teach it, and, I, and we taught defense. We played good defense, and we stretched it all the time. And if you couldn't play defense, you know, unless you were a great scorer, you probably couldn't be on the floor a lot. So kids understood that. And knowing how to play defense without being in fall trouble, that was one of the things we didn't practice all the time. And we would, we would do different things in our drills to make sure that kids understood that. Or we would play, say, okay, you got three falls, and we'd go after you all night long. You're one of our better players. We're going to attack you and practice all night long, and you're going to play without falling and be smart about it. And I think we did a good job with that because being from a small school and people always told me this too, you know, you don't play a lot of players because you coached in a small school and you didn't have as many players. 
And maybe that's true. I don't know. But a lot of times, you know, I thought 32 minute game, your top seven can play 32 minutes. I'm on my best guys on the floor, but you got to do it without fouls. So we emphasize that. And transition basketball, and that was one thing Coach Meyer always said you can run every time down the floor. You're not always going to get a fast break lane or whatever, but you're going to make the defense get back every single time. So we love to get up and down the floor. And when you have the when you have the horses, it's the, it's the greatest basketball in the world. I know Craig's looking forward to it this year because he thinks he can really run the floor with those guys. One thing you spoke of there that I want to ask basketball IQ. That's something that I think is so hard to if you don't have it from a young age because it's ingrained in you a little bit. It's hard to teach later on. How did you teach basketball IQ to your players in practice? That's a really great question. Uh, first of all, I'll tell you a story of Laverne. When I got to Laverne, there were some talented players there. They were winning like three games a year, you know, and stuff like that. But their basketball IQ was zilch. And we had a kid on the team named Justin Tweet, and he was a really good shooter. He was like me. He could shoot. He was really slow, but he loved the game. Big gopher fan, you know what I mean? And his, his family had a little bit of money, and he had a big screen TV before they were even invented. And he could get satellite, and he got all the gopher games and stuff. And I said, Justin, here's what I want you to do. Every, what, a Tuesday, Thursday, or whatever, you get all the guys over there. I said, um, if your mom and dad need a little help for snacks and stuff, I'll help you out. But I said, get them to watch the game. Get them to start watching basketball. They never watched. They played. And I thought that was just a key thing. Be a fan and learn the game, and they did. That helped. I think that is so, so important. I think that today's youth, and I'm I'm, I'm 29, so, <laughs> but I, I'm saying our, our teenagers, are. I think we're so caught up in just watching short highlights of stuff on Instagram or, or wherever they're getting their, their short bits of media to actually sit down and watch full games. And if you're actually a student of the game to watch what's happening in the game and why people are attacking certain things. And you can learn, like you said, so much through actually watching the game and why things happen. I think that's kind of a lost art that, I mean, we used to sit down and just watch games whole. And I think that's kind of getting lost as we move forward. It is a lost art, no question about it. And um, my wife watches sports with me all the time. And she would always know when it comes to the end of the game because I would grab it. was a close game. I'd grab a pen or whatever, some paper. I'd say, all right, what are they going to do in these situations? And I'd write that stuff down all the time. So I would tell my players the same thing. Watch the end of those close games. See what's going on. But we had an advantage, too. You grew up in a small town, and I don't know if you grew up in a small town or not. But anyway, that's all we did was play sandlot basketball and football and baseball. So we were out playing all the time. You knew the game. These kids don't do enough of that. And so you're right. It's kind of a lost art. I think that when I always um, introduce myself at the beginning of a year to a new class and I talk about my town being about 300 people, the, the question that always comes out of students' mouths is, well, what did you do? Right. I'm like, what do you mean what we do? We had tons of stuff to do. We went to the park. We played baseball. We played football. We went to the <laughs> tennis courts. We played basketball. We tried to play tennis. We tried to do whatever. And I think that that is so true that, that like we don't do enough of that anymore. It's It's gone. Absolutely. And, we, you know, I was growing up, we had two TV stations. And if someone was running the mixer next door, you couldn't see the TV, you know. But we were outside all the time. They always asked me about what do you do in the wintertime. I said, we were outside doing stuff. We had snowmobile suits and stuff like that. We were always outside. You're right. Getting outside and doing stuff. They, they, these kids sometimes say, there's nothing to do in town. I said, are you crazy? There's so much to do, but you don't have to have a lot of things. Just go out and have a good time. And I think it's cool to see, and, and, and I'm going to have you speak on this, some of the best basketball players and, and athletes in general from South Dakota have come from small towns and have played that sandlot baseball or sandlot basketball or whatever it is. Who would be on your Mount Rushmore of high school boys basketball if you had four to pick? Four players? Yes. Four players to pick. Oh, I would take. And, and let's, let's, let's put it this way, that you've coached against. Okay. That you've coached against. Uh, Eric Klein, definitely. Kirk Heinrichs, um, Mike Miller, um, the Piakowski kid from Rapid City Stevens would be on there. Um, let me go back up north. There was a kid, I can't think of his name now. Um, oh, there was a little guard from Ipswich, and I can't think of his name. Uh, he was a great little player. God, he worked hard. But I had a kid up there, too, that I would that I'd always mention that, that played for me, Justin Stemper, about 5'7", and was an unbelievable player. Uh, just because he, he had great work ethic. Mm -hmm. But those, those would probably be right at the top, no doubt. Was the Ipswich last name in Osborne? No, it wasn't okay. Osborne. Okay. God. Just got to throw a, an, yeah. an Ipswich name That's out there. That's an Ipswich there. name. It now. is. It is. <laughs> uh, so what do you? let's talk about some of your players here. What, okay. what would you? What would they say about you, do you think, if we asked them now? What kind of coach were you? Like, 
kind of along that those lines. Okay. Um, first of all, they definitely say that I was very passionate and energetic, but they would say that I was there every night, um, always well organized. I always had a plan, and I've still got some of them. And uh, some of the guys that coach with me still have some of them. They've saved some of those types of things. Um, just love the game. Um, and we had fun playing. Our style of basketball. I think they really loved our style of basketball. They would say that. Um, uh, demanding. Mm-hmm. Demanding, no question about it. Uh, but uh, they would always say, even if I got a little a little too demanding or maybe maybe a little bit too upset at times, they knew how much I cared about them. I know they would say that. So one thing in, in the people I've talked to, and I'd actually played against Sioux Falls, Washington in a summer camp down here. Um, and I don't remember a lot from that game. You know how summer summer team camps go. It's just kind of right. in Washington, you had three teams in it. So I think you were, you know, playing whoever. But I do remember playing against Derek Farniak as he was like a sophomore. And he wasn't much of a basketball player, but he, if anybody knows, he was a big body. Right. Um, <laughs> our biggest guy at Langford was about 6'2". That was big for us. And this guy is 6'7", six, 6'8", six, and just a monster. But that's not what I'm getting at. Some people I talked to call you the most animated coach they've ever seen. And I want to know, because I'm trying to add animation to my coaching, is the animation, the jumping off the bench, the I heard about the wheelchair experience, you're coaching <laughs> a season in a wheelchair. Did your, did your animations come naturally or did you learn them somewhere? No, I think it was pretty natural. It's just my energy. I was a player too. I was a fist pumper and that stuff. People would call me a hot dog, but it really wasn't that. I was just passionate about the game. Um, I've had coaches tell me when they came to scout a game, they said they really enjoyed watching me. <laughs> I said, you're supposed to be watching the game. But uh, uh, I think that energy flowed over to the kids, you know. I, I would uh, – I used to, sometimes I would go out after, after we made a big run on a team and the other guy would call a timeout and I'd be shooting my six guns off and stuff like that. And I don't really know where all that came from. But then sometimes I would see, the, see our cheerleaders and the fans on the other side doing the same thing. And, uh, yeah, I think it was just pretty natural. I, don't, I didn't ever orchestrate it. It just kind of happened. So did you, during the wheelchair year, or was it a whole season? No, it was about six or seven games. How hard was it to stay in that wheelchair? Did you ever try to get out of it? Oh, yeah, I was out in the middle before. <laughs> yeah, I um, Actually, my our principal at that time, Carla Middle, was really happy. I was strapped in that thing. She thought that was pretty cool. And a couple of the assistant coaches say that their primary job was pulling you back to the sideline when you were out in the middle of the floor. Yeah, well, my I tore my knee out really badly. It was a weird kind of, kind of thing in, in a, in a Kittleland almost star game, you know, fundraiser. And so my left leg had to stick straight out because it couldn't be bent yet. And so if I was too close to the floor, it would be on the floor. And so, yeah, they would have to pull me back all the time. That's that's just another assistant coaching duty, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, duty there's, yeah, no doubt. As other duties as assigned, we call that. <laughs> um, would you have done anything different over your coaching years? Yeah, you know, I've been asked that a few times. I think at times when maybe I was upset about something, I would have waited until everybody got deep in the huddle so everybody couldn't quite see that. <laughs> maybe I, I always told myself, can I be a little bit better at just doing that in the locker room instead of front of people? But you have to understand, when I first started coaching, Bob Walks was the head coach at Northern State. Bruce Carrier was at Huron. And that kind of coaching display was normal. They would throw stuff up in the stands, and they would meet players halfway out on the court, and fans kind of liked it. Brunel Glanzer down at Armour was the same way. And that was a very much accepted a part of coaching when we were growing up. So when you did those things, it was uh, fans kind of almost looked forward to it. So I got into a groove of doing it a little bit, and I, I think that would be something I would take back, but or try to try to curtail a little bit. Yeah. So you spoke on some coaches there, and one of the coaches you didn't mention was Coach Munson. You coached against him often um, in the 2001 state championship as well, correct? What are a couple of your best or most memorable months experiences? Well, first of all, it was just the fact that you're going up against the legend. And now we played him a few times early when I got here, and they got us pretty good. And actually, we were just we were getting closer to them for a while, but, you know, that's kind of how it was for everybody. And then it was 98, I think, 99. Justin Fries was a senior that year, and we were undefeated. We were really good, and they were really good, and they came here. And, you know, it was a packed house, one of those great, great nights. And before the game, he shook my hand. He said, you've done a good job, son, in turning this program around. He called me son. And so <laughs> that made you feel pretty good when he told you that. And we did win that game by about 11. And um, and uh, it was it was a fun night without any question about it. Would that have been the year after Mike Miller graduated? Yeah, it was. Okay. It was. We played them the year before here. And uh, 
guarded Mike pretty good. We held him to 34, but he didn't have a lot of field goals. He had a ton of free throws that night. We played it was a heck of a game though, but uh, it, he was just hard to guard. Held him to 34. Yeah, we yeah. held him to 34. So uh, we did a pretty good job. I, we can't have you on and not talk about someone who also uh, teaches here and coaches here, Mr. Basketball, J.J. Hyden. What, what can you tell us about him as a player? Well, J.J. was an undersized post who had um, tremendous feet, tremendous hands, um, wasn't a shooter. You know, so he was, he was pretty much had to play on the block. But one thing I learned from Coach Meyer is if you can uh, p- uh, move, counter move at the post. And also, if you can set your man up where you can catch the ball and score without having to make a move. And J.J. was an expert at that. And, uh, you know, I guess we helped him along the way. But once you taught J.J. a few of those things and just explained uh, the whole idea behind getting your man set up on the high side when the ball was swung, to the, swung down to the, to, the, to the wing and catch it and score, he just did it himself. And uh, we didn't have a real good shooting team. We were big inside. And so we ran a vertical screening game with, the, with our three guards that kind of stood outside in motion. They were to run some stuff out there. We'd ball screen once in a while. But the two big guys were vertical screen all the time. And they were just great at setting each other up. And JJ is this kind of guy, he'll get you, he'll get you on his hip and it's all over. He did the same thing about Marty. And uh, I remember the coach down there telling me I, I didn't have to teach him much. He just knew what he was doing. He did the same thing in open gyms here as an old man. That's I, 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 we, when we go play open gyms, people don't understand how he's so effective because all of a sudden he sets a screen and he's sealing under the basket and it's just a layup. And it doesn't look any, like you said, it's nothing fancy. Right. It's nothing that nobody hasn't seen before, but he just does it better than anybody else. Yeah, he did it. He did it great. And the thing was they could, they could, uh, play off the perimeter players because we didn't shoot the ball very well, but he still found a way to get himself open. And he was such a hard worker all the time. So dedicated, great student. And you talk about basketball IQ. When I think about the teams where we have really good teams and we won state championships, I look at those five starters and every one is a 4.0 student. So that plays into it really well. Absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come back with a lot of uh, good stuff on the circle of courage, as well as just kind of our, our state of our world right now. So we'll have you back in just a second. Stay tuned. Hey, this is JJ Hayden. And for this break, I want to tell you about my favorite coach trip memory. It was my junior year against Roosevelt and they were really playing off me at the three point line. I took a three and missed it short. From the sideline, I hear Coach Trett yell, JJ, what the hell are you shooting that for? Who's going to rebound? Let's just say that was the only three-point shot I attempted the whole year, going 0 for 1 on the season. Now back to Coach Trett for more of the Warrior Way. All right, we're back. Uh, We've had a ton of great stuff already thus far, and I think we're going to get into some more great stuff here. Grant, what do you have for him? So... Like every episode that we do on here, we do want to spend a little time talking about the circle of courage. So usually each week we'll focus on a certain part but with you, Trett. We're going to kind of just leave it open with you. So as a whole, which part do you think is, do you see is most evident in our building? Like which one stands out the most to you? Uh, well, first of all, I think the circle of courage is really a hallmark of Washington High. It's something that we've always uh, really stood tall on. I think about it with all our diversity and people from every part of the world and and when you walk down the halls, you even hear people with other, you know, speaking other languages and stuff. And I think what we've done a great job of is the belonging part, is bringing everybody together. I, I tell people all the time, and you see all this divisiveness in our country and all these protests and this looting and all this stuff. And I said, they should just come here. I said, I know we're not perfect, but I should watch our school, walk in here, stand at the top of the grand staircase and watch these kids interact together. And... Um, it's a sense of belonging. We were talking about it yesterday in government, and one of the kids said, there is probably a few problems here and there, because I said, am I just naive because I'm a teacher and I don't see it, but I think we get along great, and the kids agree. But they said, there's probably a, there's probably a little bit of a problem here and there because it's, it's hard to be perfect, but overall, they, they talk about that, trying to, even though we're, we're white, and she was a white girl talking, she says, I, I, I'm a person of privilege because I'm white. But we got to make these kids belong. We got to make these kids want to be involved in all the activities and stuff, and not just the sports, but everything else. But if you don't ask them, if you don't encourage them, they're not going to come around. So I think we've done a really good job with that. And and one of the things I think of too is when it comes to having issues or problems that arise in our building. Like you said, we do have things that that happen, but I always think that progress doesn't happen without problems happening. You know, we solve the problems and because of those, we have progress that can be made. 
we've had a lot of stuff and you kind of spoke on the divisiveness with our country. And we try to kind of, you know, make that known here at Washington and, and do something about it. We've had the Black Student Empowerment Group that's right. been, um, you know, really doing some great things. What can we continue to do to raise awareness and what can we do as staff or everybody to support uh, what's happening in the movements that are going on? Well, first of all, I think we have to really listen and uh, let these people talk, support them and find out what they're all about. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about racial problems or racial tensions, a lot of it's because people don't understand their plight. They don't understand their culture. They don't know much about them. And so getting to know things about them, I was telling the students yesterday, I, at the end of every school year, when you get invited to these graduation parties, you know, I always try to go to everyone if I, if I can. And uh, to walk into those people's homes, people from other countries, people that don't have a lot, and to see that they might have this little home, and you walk inside, it's spick and span, they're proud of what they have, they don't have a lot of money, and they're really happy to see you walk in, their eyes just get big as ever, and getting to know everybody else. Um, Racism is something that no one is no one is born with it. It's taught. It's learned. It's a learned trait. And so we got to help people out. And we're the ones that need to take those steps forward and then support these people. I think one one really good thing I heard recently was we would begin to tackle the problem of racism if we cared for racism the way we're caring about COVID. If we cared about figuring out the disease and figuring out how to you know, therapeutically treat it or a vaccine or whatever it is, if we cared in the same way about COVID, we cared about racism, we could begin to make progress. And I think that's really true. I think that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of things that are being said, but we're trying to figure out the action part of it. And another part to, to build off what you said uh, of being a great listener, I, I completely agree. And I think that's what we need to do is educate ourselves and listen. I also think that it's really important for everybody who's going to do the talking to make sure that what they're saying is factual because there is so much stuff being spewed out everywhere that your ears listen, but are you listening to the right things? So when you're, you're, you're in a club here at Washington or when you're, you know, you're outside promoting or um, you know, being an activist or whatever it is to support your cause, making sure whatever information you're going to tell is absolutely factual so that the ears are hearing the right things. I think that's really important too. Well, that's a great point. And we know today, and since I teach government history, I do watch a lot of news and try to share things with the kids. And I said, you're gonna to have to decipher what's true and what's not true in some cases, because one station is for the president, one station is against the president, but you know, I listen to those types of things. But I think it's really important to find out the facts, no doubt about it. So you can speak on this for young people listening, what places have you found that provide good factual information? Well, first of all, just listening to the people in general, um, if, they'll, if they'll talk. I teach American Studies. That's a class where we have, uh, I have a partner, Mrs. McIntyre. She teaches a lit comp and I teach the history. They're in there for two hours. She does a lot of writing. I do a little bit of writing too, but most of my stuff is discussion, discussion. But a lot of kids aren't going to say anything in front of everybody. There are, there's always those few, but they will write it. And she gets papers and she'll bring them over and put them on. And says, you got to read this. And then I read it and read it. And then they're spewing all this stuff out. And that's where we learn so much. Then I might sit down with that kid one on one and say, what can we do to help you? Or what can we do to support you? Or what's going on here? Or how can we get you more involved? So that part of it is really critical. And kids will kids will say things. But a lot of times they don't want everybody else to hear it. Um, I, as far as the news goes, I'm, I kind of. I kind of have a lot of faith in the CBS people, and I guess maybe people will blow me away on that. I don't know. But I like Nora O'Donnell, Gail King, and those people. I think they're, they're trustworthy. Now, I could be wrong, but uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of something I look to. And I think that's, that's the hard part of it is just we, we all have different. We don't know where is true information or what. So it's really important that I, I think even if, if maybe you said CBS is or isn't credible, you make sure to find multiple sources Absolutely. and not just depend on one at the very least yeah. i'm gonna like something you said there jumped out to me about how you said when you get writing from a student you'll meet them one-on-one -on -one and kind of talking going back to like the belonging you talked about i think that's huge for our kids here is just and that's what i've loved about washington being now here two years teaching and three years coaching is i think our staff does a great job at finding those kids who maybe reach out through writing we do a great job i think of saying hey what can we do to help you? And I think as long as our kids feel supported, I think that's what makes Washington 
so amazing to be a part of. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> I've been at three schools and they were all good. And when it came to Washington, the one thing, and Coach Murray will always talk about this, and he just tells everybody in town this, that we, uh, the teachers run the school here, and the teachers care about the kids, and we have a good staff. And our staff changed a lot. My first year here, there was 20 of us who were brand new, and I'm the only one left. And uh, the new teachers come in, and they're just like the old teachers. We work really well together, and we work hard for kids, and we're all about kids. And, and that's why I'm still doing it, because I enjoy it. And I think that I can still make an impact in these young kids. And I think they need that. I, I totally agree. And, and I, you said the, the words Coach Murrin. So I just want to speak on him for a second. One of the, the best and most, um, you know, loud WHS fans that there are out there. My first experience with Coach Murrin was, and he's a Northern State guy as yes, well. So he'll know all the little towns we've talked about, but I remember walking into the coach's office my first day, I was getting a locker in there to put some stuff when I'd want to go work out or, or whatever. He looks at me and he goes, Hey buddy, who are you? <laughs> and it just, oh, it, it just, in his voice, he did yeah. it. And it was just like, he welcomed me to Washington. And I think he was one of the first people along with coach Melchow. He was the first person that actually, when I walked into the office for my interview, he was there. Um, he was, uh, interning with Kennedy to kind of fill in that AD role the next yep, year. And yep. I remember Coach Melchow sitting down with me and immediately we had a connection with Aberdeen and Northern State and all that stuff. So we started talking, but Coach Murrin and and Coach Melchow and so many others just do a great job of feeling, making people right away feel as if they belong um, and that they have a home here. What other pieces of the circle of courage, you know, when it comes to generosity or mastery or independence that do you see evident every day? Well, the generosity is a big thing too. We have a lot of students here who come from difficult environments and um, to help those kids out. I know all the years when I was coaching and everything, going to team camps and doing those types of things, or, or, to buy all this, the, the clothes and stuff before the season for, to get kids. A lot of the schools, those kids could all afford and our kids couldn't. So we found ways. But all you had to do was talk to people. I used to go to businesses and I would give them a letter that say, could you donate $20 so I could help all these kids do this stuff? And the money would just flow in. And... People in general, talk to a teacher, talk to somebody in the community, uh, like the walkers, anybody, what they do for kids. So our generosity is fantastic. We want everybody involved, but some kids can't be involved because they got to work to help their families. But can we work that out? Can we can we find a way so they can still get to work or they can still get to practice, uh, giving kids rides, all those things? We're huge on that. That's what makes – and this is a big school. A lot of times you only see that in small towns. Absolutely. And and I was I was amazed at it coming from small town, too, because like, you know, at a small town, you're trying to just get enough money from your from your booster club or whatever to provide new jerseys every three years, let alone you go to a I remember one of my first experiences going to a football game and uh, the walkers were there and they had a T-shirt for every student in there, you know, in, in the student section packing it. Um, hundreds and hundreds of t-shirts and I just looked I'm like is this real life is this actually happening everybody gets a t-shirt for free it's just absolutely amazing what people do to support our students here at Washington so um, just want to kind of touch on the challenges that we're facing um, and what we need to do to kind of maybe in, in a sense right the ship what what can we start doing to try to get things turning around when it comes to we've got an election coming up we've got you know, the social injustice and everything that just seems to be a big melting pot right now. What types of things do we need to do to start riding the ship and getting in a different direction? Well, we go back to what we talked about at one time, listening to people, trying to find out what the, what the real problems are and trying to figure out how we can best um, solve those problems. But I really think division stops when leadership starts. And uh, that's, that's the biggest thing. Um, I was telling the students the other day, too, I said, you know, I coached for 33 years and I played my whole life. And I was really lucky to be on teams that pretty much were always going in the right direction. But there was a couple of years where it didn't. And I told them, I said, anytime we were divided, I knew we weren't going anywhere. And America is not going to get where it wants to get until we get, get back together. And so you got to be willing to compromise and give up a little bit, give up a little bit of something uh, to help the cause. And that's what the founding fathers based this whole country on was compromise. And you know what? We're going to disagree on things. We don't all agree politically. We don't all agree on a lot of things. We differ in our opinions, but that's a, that's a strong point of a democracy that you can actually voice your opinion. And now so many people, as soon as you say something that doesn't agree with them, it's, it's immediate anger and they don't even want to discuss it. And that's not going to help the cause at all. We need leadership and people coming together and it, it can happen. So, people want to listen to each other. So what you spoke on there, 
how to disagree without being, um, you know, blatantly rude in a sense to the other person. Yeah. How does one disagree in a respectful way? Just by being able to give their opinion um, in, a, in an appropriate manner. Um, you, just, you just made a really good statement. Um, rightness doesn't allow you to be rude just because you think you're right. Everybody doesn't think just like we do. People think differently, and it's okay. We talk about um, majority, majority rules, because the majority will be right most of the time. But you need to respect the rights of the minorities. And if you can do that, then there's compromise, and then we can come together, and uh, there's not so much polarization. People can solve some problems. It's like, um, uh, and you've all been on teams, everybody accepting a role. You know, the guy that doesn't get to play much still is maybe your hardest worker in practice on that, on that bomber squad that's that's uh, helping you prepare for the next team. If you get people to accept those roles, then then, then we can make progress. I, I think you touched on something well there with both of you talking about how to have discussion. I still remember, like, growing up from a small town, I had certain views and everything. But then when I came to the big city, some of those views started to differ from what I grew up in a small town. But I remember sitting down with people. Um, and just having conversations with them about it. And at the end of it, I may not have fully agreed with what they were saying, but just through that discussion, I was able to be like, oh, I guess I never thought about it from that way. And I think that sometimes our youth are so used to just like screaming at each other and everything and not agreeing. And I think it's kind of our responsibility a little bit to maybe almost start teaching them how to have that healthy discussion. And at the end of it, you may not agree with them fully, but at least you're walking away from the conversation, at least having maybe more respect the other side. Yeah, that discussion part's a big deal. That's uh, uh, things that I love to do in classes. Get the kids to talk and discuss things, even if we don't agree on everything. Get them to open up a little bit, and uh, I think that's really healthy. Some people are afraid to do that because they think that, okay, kids are going to start yelling at each other and stuff like that. I said, no, you can referee it a little bit. That's okay. And they'll learn to disagree with each other appropriately. If you got to do it a couple of times, though, you know? Uh, so we we play this game on the other hand. So I'll bring up a topic. I'll say, somebody start. And so some kid will start talking about it. And then I'll say, on the other hand, and then another student will say, well, yeah, but I think more, uh, you know, this way. And then we go back and forth with that. Pretty soon everybody's involved. Nobody's screaming. And um, even get some kids to talk. They never talk. They never, ever talk. So one thing we spoke with Lexi Goman uh, on a previous episode about social media and the way social media is trending, whether it's healthy or unhealthy and how it's impacting youth and not just youth, everybody right now. Uh, when it comes to disagreeing on things, social media doesn't seem to seem to be the healthiest way to go online and, and voice your opinion. How do people in general start to use social media in a way that can be beneficial and more healthy? Well, yeah, great point. Um, I think one of the reasons that people can be so nasty on social media is because they don't have to see you face to face. They can click the button and just turn away. Uh, again, just listening to what they have to say. And then um, if you want to count an argument with some facts, we brought that up before, uh, throw some facts out there or, or maybe just say, you know, I agree with part of what you're saying, but I think maybe um, there's some other ways of looking at it too. There's just not always one way to skin a cat. And if you can do that appropriately, um, I was talking to a guy the other day from the Northwestern area. I recognized the name, but I don't know who he was. And we were all done. And I said, um, and he really tried to put me down. And I kind of snickered because, you know, I've been a coach for so long. That didn't bother me. I said, what are you so angry about? I said, I don't understand it. And uh, he responded. He said, I'm not sure. And I think maybe that helped. I don't know. <laughs> I don't sure. I, I know he wasn't sure what he was so angry about. And I, I think with social media, the you know I think how we're taught is to think before we speak. And I think that growing up, that's something that hopefully is internalized in a lot of people. I think that almost goes out the out the window with social media because it's so, like you said, it's not confrontational face to face. So the thinking part of it goes out the window while I'm typing it, and then the click is so easy, and all of a sudden it's there. And then I think the thinking comes after I send it. I look at it and I'm like, should I have done that or not? So I would caution many to just really think about what you're putting out there, because like we tell our students, once it's out there, you can delete it, but it's still somewhere. Oh, it's somewhere. So, oh, and, I, and I can't tell you how many times I've gotten emails from parents, maybe coworkers, that I've typed something up, and I'll look at it, and I'll just be like, 
you know what? Nope, just going to, even before I send it, like you said, I read it before just to make yeah. sure. And then I just delete it. I'm like, okay, there, I'm better. I don't need to. And then I send something more level-headed and all of that. Yeah, I know in my discussions with our students, uh, at times, um, I'll get a parent, a parent-teacher conference or sometime, and they may email me and said, you know, it sounds like you're you're way over on the left or you're this or that or something like that. And I said, no, I'm just trying to get everybody involved in discussion. I'm not pushing my ideology on them. I'll never give my opinion unless they ask. Now, if they ask, I say, listen, okay, you want to know what I think about this? Okay, let's say that we're going to vote on recreational medical marijuana. You want to know what I think about it? I'll tell you. But it doesn't mean I'm right. And don't be running home and telling your parents that I'm pushing on you. But I think it's healthy that you know how I feel too. And I think students accept that pretty good. Last thing I want to kind of touch on with this topic is uh, right, wrong, or otherwise, we all do it. We all always equate situations to sports and leadership and coaching. And you brought up something a while ago. I always say one of the most important things that we do as teachers, as coaches, as fathers, as husbands, whatever we're doing, is leading by example and letting our example be before our words. And I just think that somewhere along the line with leadership that's way above us in our country or wherever, that's being lost, especially when there's videos and there's press conferences and there's opportunities for example to be shown every day, and yet it's being left behind or mixed messages being given. How do we continue to be that example for our students or be that example in our communities um, in ways that people actually see it and start to believe it? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I definitely agree with what you said there. It's being lost. Again, I think we're a shining example at Washington High. I mean, look at the teachers wearing their masks, but look at the kids wearing their masks, and look at how they follow the arrows. Now, there's a small percentage that don't. You're going to have that everywhere. But boy, if we just had a small percentage of Americans right now not following all the rules and regulations, we'd be a lot better off. And, you know, we can have a discussion until until um, we turn blue in the face about this COVID thing. But if everybody would just say, oh, okay, I'm going to listen to the scientist. I'm going to put a mask on. I'm going to social distance the best I can. Give up a little bit of something, and maybe we help everybody else out. It would be a safer place. Comes That's back. not asking so much. comes back to that compromise that you mentioned yeah, earlier. Yeah, definitely. And it's a very, in my mind, it's a very small thing. There could be much worse things we have to do besides put a mask on our face, in in, in my estimation. But Absolutely. You know, my life, I don't think, has changed all that much. When I'm home, I'm out with the dogs. When I go golfing, I don't I go golf. I don't, have, I don't wear a mask out there. I mean, there's times when you got to give a little bit up, a little sacrifice, and the rest of the time, everything's pretty normal. Okay, we better get to our draft. Mr. Tr Mr. Tret's got a tea time here coming up, so we got to make sure to get him out and about. Let's get to the draft. Okay, so every week we you know we do a draft. So this week, what we're going to do is we're going to all pretend we're trapped on a deserted island, and we have to bring five Washington High School staff members with us on this island. Current staff members, and we're we're snaking it, Tret. So you're a guest. You go first. It goes to to Grant, to myself. I get two picks. Back to you. You'll get two picks. We're going five each total. Okay. Okay. So your number one pick, go ahead. My number one pick, I got to go with JJ Hyden without any question. Going back to a uh, uh, guy that's been my heart and soul for a long time. Okay. Um, with my first pick, I'm going to take uh, Mr. Schaefer's out of the math department. He's from the Black Hills area. So I think he's going to have a little bit of some survival skills with that one. That's a good one. Okay. My first pick along the similar lines, I'm going to go with Dwayne Bohr. Our uh, Broncos fan, our, our, our Woods teacher here, I feel like he's going to know how to um, navigate the uncertainty of the island we're on. And with my number two pick, I'm going to kind of cross the, the, the barrier there into the medical field. I'm going to go with our nurse, Carrie Clark. Uh, she'll be able to handle any emergencies that arise. It's a great pick by Clark. Good Thank pick. you. Uh, my second pick, I'm going to go with Mr. Stahlberg. I think we might need some strength out there. <laughs> lug some stuff around. I think that's who I'm going to go with. He'll be able to carry some logs for you? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, I, I, one or two picks. You get two. Okay, two. okay I got to go with this guy. He's still working here. He's retired, but he's still working. He's here all the time. I got to go with Coach Murray. 
without any question. You wrote that down before I even said it. <laughs> That's good. Are you just hoping that Coach Murrin tells stories the whole time, or, oh, yeah. or what, 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 what will Murrin bring to the island? He is a, he's a survivor. He's a, he's, a, he's a painter. He can he can do construction work. The guy can do a lot of things that can help you on that. And the next pick, we got to have a lady with us to help us out in a lot of different ways. And one of our real strong ladies is uh, Jamie Van Sloten. Very good pick. Very good pick. Um, I'm going to keep the lady thing going, and I'm going to take uh, Holly Borchers for my next one. I feel like that she'd bring a lot of good pick. adventuring along, be able to keep us together. I like it. Can't argue with that one. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go my third pick. I'm going to go with Mr. Smith, Adam Smith. A genius. He'll be able. I think he'll just be able to figure any problem out. I, I don't think there's nothing. There's anything that he won't be able to overcome. And then my uh, fourth pick is going to be Allison Turhorst, psychology teacher. I think she'll be able to keep all of our minds in check or or in the right place to be able to get through whatever we're going through. All right, my fourth pick um, kind of went the science field as well, but I uh, I went with Mrs. Schaefer's. Figured I took Mr. Schaefer's, so I might as well bring the wife along as well. So Mrs. Schaefer's as well. Again, a balancing act just to make sure Logan stays yes, level-headed. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. And we have uh, we have Jamie Van Sloan, so you have Allie with her. That's a really good balancing act. And we, we need a counselor. We need someone in case, you know, people are a little bit down and out because we're stranded. So I'm going to go with Travis Sieber. Good pick, good pick. Okay, you get your fifth well, pick. And my final pick. Your final pick, yep. Well, I've got to pick my fellow North Dakotan. Craig Nelson because it's just the blood runs deep. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to with my last pick. We might need some people to keep us uh, fit. So might be a weird pick, but I'm going to go with uh, Coach Schroeder from the PE department. What will Schroeder do? <laughs> I think it's obvious what he brings to the table. <laughs> he kind of has that lumberjack yes, beard. Okay, there we go. Yeah, good. We'll go with that. That's my reason because of the beard. Okay, um, my last pick. Uh, I'm picking this this lady because I feel like she'll just keep everybody in order and bark out orders and make sure we are where we need to get to. That's going to be KVM Christy Van Mietren. Oh yeah, she will make sure. And if nothing else, she will find a way to call for call for help um, in one way, shape, or form, and and help will arrive on our island. So, all right, that that's the last pick, right? Yes, that is the last okay. pick. Um, so I think we've got some good lists there. Um, we'll try to throw something out for people to see who's got the best one, but coach Trett, we just really appreciate all the knowledge you dropped today, all the info and everything that you bring to Washington high school. Um, and we, we've, we've had the privilege of getting to know you well, and it's just amazing. The impact, I always think of the word impact that you have brought and continue to bring to young people. And uh, we just thank you so much for taking the time to come on our, our podcast. Well, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad you guys are doing this. I know the people in Washington and the community really enjoy it. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. And I think, I guess I said it before, the reason I'm still teaching. I love to teach, but I think that if we can make an influence and an impact on young people, they need that today. So I hope I'm still doing that. But thank you very much. What you're doing is remarkable. So, Trent, thanks again. Um, another episode of the Warrior Way podcast. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks.